two by two hands of blue. Does she say that at all in this or is that just a Firefly thing? She doesn't say that in this, Lucas. Just a Firefly thing? Hi there, this is Luke. On today's episode, we look at tone, exposition, and the importance of antagonists in Joss Whedon's Serenity. Welcome to Notes from the Silver Screen. He's not a man. He's the holy half-dead who's seen the Underverse. Look, I'm not with everyone here. But I will take a piece of him. Now that your savior is still as the grave, you're beginning to fear me. I don't deserve this. To die like this. I was building a house. Deserves got nothing to do with it. The time has come. Execute Order 66. You, you can't be serious. You, you know what I put on the line here. You want a prize? Some medal, because for once in your life you took the side of the little guy? Love. You can learn all the math in the verse. You take a boat in the air that you don't love. She'll shake you off just as sure as a turn in the world. Love keeps her in the air when she ought to fall down. Why'd you pick Serenity, Logan? I don't know. I wanted to watch it. I thought of it. I wanted to watch it. I'm a big fan of Firefly. I think Firefly's really fun. I haven't seen it for a couple years, but I really enjoy it. It's weird about the movie is that it seems... Well, like, Firefly wasn't a big budget TV program. It did seem like... And that felt kind of the same in Firefly. It didn't feel like... It's like a triple A movie or anything. It's kind of weird. Because it's Joss Whedon. And he makes like the Avengers movies and stuff. Which are, it seemed like I have a bunch of money piled into them. Well, this is pre-Avengers. Avengers is probably the biggest thing he's ever done. Like there's still, I don't know, I guess CGI's and stuff in it. And stuff that, I'm sure it wasn't cheap. But maybe, maybe it's just like the level of polish I feel. Isn't as high as other comparable movies. But I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it kind of lends itself to the character. Firefly. Probably why it has... I mean, it has like that big cult following, doesn't it? All these fans for... And there's only like one season of Firefly. It's probably part of its charm. I don't know. I think the history of Firefly is kind of weird. I don't know why like Fox... Seems like Fox was against it. Because they canceled it really early. It hadn't even finished its run. And... They aired two episodes out of order, and... I probably don't like gingers. Seems like it was kind of doomed to die. Compared to Firefly, it was a lot bigger budget. And, I mean, in the special features, Whedon talks about being able to construct... Because they had to rebuild all of the stages again, because apparently they were they trashed the, like, Firefly set after the show got canceled. But they, like, rebuilt them all on those like rockers and so they can shake the whole set when they're like flying and whatnot there there's some substantial cgi work like space battles and the ion clouds and there's pretty good stunt work Mm -hmm. that was i feel like that was one thing that they really talked about a lot was um just the the stunt work because summer glau did a lot of hers and Baldwin and uh, Fillion, they all did a lot of their own stunts 
So a lot of the fighting and stuff is them. He's just falling down and hanging his face and bruising. One thing that I wanted to talk about was it's a unique film because it is one of those like continuations of an existing universe because it is based off the TV show. But if you're doing a film, it's a lot more expensive. You want to fill theaters. And so you can't make a film that's exclusive to the fan base of a series. It has to have some generic draw. The The interesting thing I found was listening to Whedon talk about how he structured the beginning. It's like a, a Russian nesting doll. It has all of these narratives that kind of like subvert your expectations in order to keep an audience engaged during the initial like bringing them up to speed with all of the exposition because it starts and you have a voiceover explaining the universe we're in with the terraformed planets it's kind of basic you know pretty white bread but then it turns out that it wasn't a voiceover it was the professor teaching history in summer school. And so you're like, okay, we're, that was the professor teaching in school. But then it turns out that that was a nightmare and Summer's really in the Alliance testing thing and they're drilling into her brain. And then it turns out that it was, it's not even that. It's the operative watching a recording of her in the Alliance testing station. And then it ends there because he actually was watching the recording. I, I felt like I agreed with a lot of what Whedon was saying about how he used that structure to keep it interesting and engaging because it continually pulls the rug out from under you. Yeah, and I didn't even notice it. You don't notice that, like, he's just expositing the, like, entirety, the entire background that you would have from the series so that somebody can walk in cold and understand what's happening by using that that like nested technique of unveiling oh this isn't what you thought it was this isn't what you thought it was this is what you, over and over again just kind of flies past and you don't even notice and all of a sudden we're you know the operative is slicing and dicing guys and you know why and you have an inkling of who he is and everything but it was like supposed to be like a, ge a just like a general movie i guess stand on its own because i don't know there's other tv movies like psych the movie or uh it's that Veronica Mars thing, I think. Yeah. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen Veronica Mars, but I know there's a movie. Veronica Mars is really good. The movie is actually really bad. Um, probably sure, in maybe part. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It seems like they would have a movie. I don't know if it does, but Buffy had a long run. <laughs> Buffy and I had a spinoff angel. And... But the thing is, when, when did Serenity come out? Wasn't it 2005? With the Veronica Mars film. Yeah, not with Psych, but the Veronica Mars one was crowdfunded. That was like a Kickstarter film. How are you going to do that? What is like Kristen Bell on the rights to the Veronica Mars? I don't know. I don't know the logistics. <laughs> but I mean, 2005 was a very different market from 2010s or even like currently 2020s. His uh, name David Leslie, something like that. Play Stanley. He was going to make that Uncle Stan show. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that looked bad. That would help him. <laughs> because at the time, I mean, 2005, streaming was in a, in its infancy. Netflix was known for shipping DVDs to people. Theaters were still the cornerstone, right? If you wanted to watch a film, you went to the theaters. And so there was a lot greater expectations or like greater requirements on a film at that time. 
like we didn't he had to get his studio notes and he had to make it appealing the reason the operative exists in his form in the film is from studio notes they said no you have to have some bad guy to represent the alliance well that is a great move because he's like the coolest character in there yeah he's dope think about the tv show there's not a bad guy there's not a enemy the enemy is the alliance in general but the film is based on these little side quests right in out in space or whatever it is you'll have jubal early is the bad guy but he isn't the nemesis of mal or anything well then how is it going to be without him right i guess there's still like i guess is it just faceless alliance goons they're fighting like foot soldiers well I, i'm pretty reasons, sure that or? note was like very early on like when he f was first securing financing and right. the like rights to produce a film it was probably like okay well we're going to need a bad guy and so then he went and he wrote the script and then he he got other notes i like him he's a really cool character and very compelling like he's a guy with the vision isn't he yeah and he he's like a kind of a zealot i guess in a sense but you can't He's, he's like supposed to be the bad guy, right? But like in a sense, you can't fault him for it because he's trying to make a better world in how he believes he's serving, you could say, even a noble function. One of the reasons he functions so well is because of the sincerity of his belief. There's the great moment where him and Mal are having their their big ideological debate. And he says, you think I'm evil. I'm, I'm creating a better world. I don't know. Mal has some retort and he says, I can't live in it. I'm evil. Yeah. I've accepted that, but I still have a function to serve. And because he believes so firmly in the ideals of the Alliance, he's willing to destroy himself in order to bring about what he views as the greater good. There's nothing left to see. And yeah. he walks away. He says that. <laughs> and I liked I liked the ending too, because I gotta, I'm going to probably compare it to Star Wars again throughout the... Just because I think in this they did a better way like you kind of blow up the death star and it seems like that's kind of the exclamation point and that's kind of like the end of it i'd have to watch them again to be honest with you because i'm not quite sure like where one universe ends or whatever like when when does the empire end and then the new order or whoever else they got running around seems like there's this one big and done thing it's a it's a big empire they can rebuild from a little bad PR, but like it's still significant. And so he's like, I don't know if they'll come after you and the fight's not done, but you won the battle kind of a thing. Yeah. But I like that. The the Alliance is wounded, but they're not dead, I believe is what the operative says. Going back to the studio notes, is there's a deleted scene where the operative is on the bridge of his ship and one it the like there's a lot of heavy exposition because he's like looking up mal's files and seeing oh he fought in the battle of serenity hill and he was a volunteer and they have this moment and then he like looks up his crew and they're looking at hoban and and zoe the reason they cut that is because it was like this brightly lit spacecraft and he's walking around with his google glasses on reading <laughs> files and talking to his staff about like what they're going to do and the one of the producers told Joss, hey, like, you have this, and it explains a lot of what's going on, but the operative isn't scary anymore. He's this bureaucrat saying, oh, we've got to find the files of the guy, and then uh, we'll figure out who's on his crew. And so they cut that, and probably for the better, because 
I feel like there's there's plenty of exposition and they give you enough that at a certain point it's it's kind of a tough thing to balance because people who watch the series are going to know more but you don't need to be explicitly told that Mal was a general in a in a war against in a rebellion against the alliance you know years ago that point is conveyed well enough through the dialogue right what's great about serenity is that it's one of those like i'm gonna call it a character film it reminds me a lot of riddick just in well i guess they're both kind of sci-fi but more in like like how it feels like some feel like super high polished kind of generic in a sense like uh i don't know the star trek movies i think to a certain mm. degree yeah or oh gosh I, sh- I should have had another example before i said or like valerian in the city of a thousand planets yeah maybe i don't know that it's got that english kara devin devinji yeah whatever her name is <laughs> i don't like but anyways it feels like Riddick because it's got this whole world building kind of feel to it. There's all these religions and peoples and cultures that kind of show through really strong. And in a way, it feels like it doesn't have that polish. Sorry, describe it, but yeah. I guess that's how I would describe it. It just doesn't have the polish. It's more like a stage play in a sense, like with the costume design, maybe. Maybe that's part of it. I don't know. It's hard to nail down. But that kind of lends itself more to, you know, being charming rather than if it was highly polished, you would lose that. I do agree with that idea that they feel the same. I think for me, one of the things is they're not concerned with how they're seen, right? They're just having fun telling their story. Vin Diesel really, really loves the universe of Riddick, so much so that he made his game studio to make Riddick video games. And he's, I think, at least mostly self-produced the three films and it's just something that he really enjoys doing and kind of like nerding out about and you can feel the same way with serenity that it's a universe that joss really loved and all of the the crew were really invested in you know bringing their characters back what about ron glass i feel like he was only in one scene and that's when he died is that is that accurate he has two scenes okay (laughs) the first time they go to the shelter after their their mission and he does a little sermonizing with Mal, and then he has his death scene. That's another thing. They're not... Don't worry about killing off characters. Yeah. I guess there are only two big ones, like Mr. Universe, but I don't remember Mr. Universe from the TV show. I don't know if he was in... No, he's a construct of the film. He was another fun character, though. I really liked him, because I didn't watch all of that uh, behind-the-scenes thing, but it sounded like like part of them killing what's-his-name, Washburn, or uh, Alan Tudyk's character. Like, it was just like a scheduling conflict or something. So, uh, first, I want to talk about the preacher. What's his name? His name is Shepherd Books. Yeah. Or Book. Book. The, the interesting thing with Book is it's a film. So, like, they have constraints on the runtime. Like, the studio says, I want between, like, 110, 120 minutes or whatever it is. Then you also have, like, the, the operative and Mr. Universe and unveiling Miranda. So, you have all of these things that you have to do. And it's an ensemble cast because it's from a TV show. So I, f- I feel like that's the primary reason that both Book and Inara have very limited roles is just because you can't fit everything in. And it's one of the things that Joss talked about pretty extensively in the commentaries is just in a TV show, you can take the time to, to spend it with characters. And they were talking about 
like Shepard book cooking and in in the TV show, if if this were season two of Firefly and not a film, you would see book cooking for the crew and you would get to spend more time with Inara and her uh, being a companion. And there just isn't enough time in a feature film. There's not really any scenes between just Zoe and Wash. So there, there are just little moments where like the whole crew's together and then they'll go over and hug each other or whatever. Just try through repeatedly seeing that to kind of establish that relationship because there's not time to dedicate an episode or dedicate a period of time for Zoe and Wash and for Buck and for Inara. So you kind of lose a lot of what makes TV shows fun is having the, the strong character arcs and spending time with them. It's a good film and... It, the So the sacrifices it makes of spending time with character are for good reasons that make it a stronger film in general. Then the other thing that, that's interesting about Wash's death, yeah, some of it was some scheduling conflicts because I think he was doing a Broadway show or something at the time. But Joss, ha at that time even, he had developed a reputation. He, he had kind of a reputation for killing central characters and since book had already died he felt like maybe there wouldn't be enough stakes for the you know they're cornered and the reavers are coming and the alliance is going to stop their message and so part of the function of killing wash is oh wait maybe they are all going to die i liked how it was done it was like completely kind of banal in a sense like just out of nowhere it's like if he I don't know, in a sense, like, if he slipped and hit his head and, like, that killed him somehow. It's just, like, so, like, randomly violent. He doesn't have a big hero death moment, yeah. right? Book right. is very much the traditional film death where yeah. he monologues and, oh, that final XL and his eyes close and everybody sad down fighting, and grieves for him. Shot down the thing. And Wash, he lands the plane and they're going to disembark and, boom, he's impelled and dies instantly. The Reavers are closing in. They have to get their message. Mal says, we got to go. And so they leave and the plot continues. So it is like very impactful because it isn't, you know, how you expect a main character to die in a film. That was something that I just found interesting was the thought process of Whedon as he was writing that, well, we've killed Book. And then if we come back and we kill another main character, then the audience will believe that maybe they won't make it out. Maybe this is a, a tragedy and the whole crew is going to die you know then so he gets cut up jane gets shot kaylee gets poisoned uh the doctor gets shot it looks like river sacrifices herself to save them it's pretty pretty dark at the end there i like the reavers i don't again like it's been a long time since i've seen the show and i was you know it's not like something I watched over and over again, but I don't really remember the Reavers being like as big a thing, or if they were, I kind of remember them being more like an off-screen menace, weren't like a big focus of it. And this film, it shows them, but with one exception, kind of the slow-mo punching guy, I feel like when it shows them, it's kind of like brief glimpses of them and quick, kind of like out of the corner of your eye, you see them. I don't, I don't know if that's purposeful. I think it is, but and I, I kind of like how that is. It's not like, you know, 
the cameras holding on them for long periods of time and showing them in details and stuff. I, I like the characters, but it would be an interesting thing to how people get into the lore because how do they how do they like get started? It seems See like yeah, but here's the thing. So it makes them super violent and aggressive and they're raping and killing all day, but they can like form a society pretty much and all band together and have the capacity to fly spaceships off planet. And yeah, how does that work? I mean, I don't think you can get into the weeds. Cause... <laughs> and how is, so how is the lady not affected? Like who made the message on Miranda? She was a research team sent by the Alliance after the fact. Oh, really? That's yeah. cool. Because she, in the recording, she says it wasn't what we thought. There was no terraforming event. It was yeah, the CPAC. That's the other thing. Like, my guy, are there no ethical standards in the future? Like, I was thought Lion's just going to gas a planet with the, obviously they don't even know what it's going to do. Like, <laughs> it's so they can find out if it works. You can't test on some mice first or something? Damn, like what? <laughs> going on? When you were talking... It seems like the function of the Reavers is very much similar to the function of the Alliance. In the same way that in the series, I can only think of that one episode where they they find the guy, he's like a stowaway on their ship and he's become a Reaver because he was attacked by them. But that's like the only time the Reavers are really central to the story. They're always, you know, oh, we have to get off this planet because the Reavers are here, or we can't fly through this space because of the Reavers. And they're always just that dark menace. So I feel like having the way the Reavers are presented in the film parallels the way the operative like becomes the embodiment of the Alliance. The Reavers are more grounded, are more real, are a more immediate threat than they ever were in the series. And I think it's just, you know, the change in, in medium because you can't make a film the same way you'd make a TV show. You can't, you know, structure it thematically the same way. You can't write it. You can't shoot it the same way. It's different. Here's my here's my beef with Star Wars. At least, like, especially, I guess, like, the new movies with, like, Rey going, like, toe-to-toe with friggin' uh, Kylo Ren with, like, zero training and holding... What? Are you kidding me? I guess just as a more general point, in the movies they build up the um like the empire to be like this unstoppable, all powerful juggernaut, right? Like oh something that's world ending. And yet when they go toe to toe with the alliance or well the rebel alliance, I guess it works here too, right? The rebels are holding their own. And like especially like, I don't know, I'm not a big Star Wars fan. I haven't even seen all the new movies, but I remember that one where they were like in the little, in the little uh, shivs with the red trails coming out the back. They're just, they're just like flying out there in the open and there's like 10 AT-ATs. Why don't they shoot them down? I feel like it has, like Star Wars has its cake and eats it too. Like you can't have them be an all-powerful, unstoppable juggernaut and then just have like them blow over the second they go against the rebel alliance that's so dumb and what's cool about serenity is that 
when you kind of see the well you, you don't really see a lot of the alliance like it has like a sense of power to it but i mean you're in the vast vacuum of space right there's a bunch of different planets it doesn't feel like it's like it has the power of god i guess you know like it's unstoppable and um especially i i guess that kind of scene where they go toe to toe against the reavers when they come out which is really cool you kind of see that like they are able to marshal all this power they have to fight for it still you know it's not it's not given that they're going to win and i like that i feel like it's more a reasonable approach it just feels better to me saying they do a much better job of that it's much more believable it's ridiculous <laughs> i just wanted to talk about the cinematography so jack green i mean i think he's done a lot of work with eastwood I like a lot of how it's shot, but at some points it feels too extreme. There's just that garish light and it like washes everything out. And just, I feel like a lot of it is too bright in a way. It's too like colored. But at the same time, like I don't particularly love all of the styling, but I feel like it does fit tonally with the film. Kind of that notion that we talked about that it, it it's aware of what it is, right? So it doesn't take itself too seriously. And I think that, like, I, I was reading Ebert's review, Roger Ebert, and he was like, well, he gave it a very favorable re review. I think he gave it three stars. And he's, he said, if, like, you'll know if you like this, because if you're interested in sci-fi schlock, this is right up your alley. And you'll get exactly what you're expecting and love it kind of leans into the cheesiness maybe i don't know if cheesiness is the right word but you know like it doesn't take itself too seriously and the extreme lighting i think fits tonally i do love the choice at the end where the operative comes back to talk to mal and he says there's nothing left to see and he's left in shadow that whole scene that's a great scene because he's he's just backlit so yeah. he, like you can't really make out who he is all that well so that's just a great little scene to show I guess lighting fitting story and you know just everything coming together thank you so much for listening to notes from the silver screen I hope you enjoyed this episode if you did please share it and check back right here in a couple of weeks for our 20th episode Six seasons and a movie.